Romans 9. These are those sections of Scripture, if we're honest, why uh, people avoid Romans. Lots of questions and and uh, difficult passages, uh, like we said, not to understand, but to accept. And last week we looked at verses 14 through 18 and the fact that that in the in the choosing Jacob and, and not Esau and, and choosing to Isaac and not Ishmael, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, Paul knew the question would become, is God unjust in this? And, and in our vernacular, though it's not exactly aligned, we would say, is that fair? Is that fair? And, and I hope we dealt with that adequately to prove the reality that God can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. That, that goes with the territory of being God. And, and we build on that here. And, but, and, and when we hear that, that God alone is God and he's free to be God, the reason why we struggle with that so much is because we realize real quickly that we're not God. And, and that we battle with that. But the reality is, is, as we saw last week, there's tremendous in security in knowing that God is God and God acts freely because of his nature. There's security in that. We, we also looked at the fact that it, it teaches us that there's no evil too big that God can't forgive. There, there's no point in our life, you and I, this is the way we, you know, there are certain circumstances where we'd say, listen, Joaquin, I'd love to help you, but you've gone too far. Well, you know, if you would have only not done this, I could have helped you. And that's the way we operate, and God doesn't operate that way. God operates, the center of his operations is his glory, his name. And we know from Romans 5.20 that where, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There's no evil that's too big for God to forgive. Because he's God. And, and, and the, the question, Paul knows that as soon as he goes through this, East, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, as soon as he talks about, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And verse 17, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So then God has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. As soon as we hear that, just like last week, Paul knows you're going to have questions. These are, these are difficult truths. And so the, the main point of, uh, Paul addresses those questions, but the main point that he, he addresses them really with an answer and, and with a truth, and you see it as the main point. And again, I try to keep it cl simple on these main truths and then expound upon them so that you understand, you see how Paul is making that point. And, and this week's point, Paul is going to teach us that as God God's freedom includes not only offering mercy as he wills, but the freedom to create and judge as he wills, all to the end goal of a display of his glory. God is free to create and to judge however he wills. This is going to span over the next few weeks. My original intention was to get down into 24, 25 and that. It just didn't work out that way because there's just too much here and, and there's too many... It, my fear was if we gloss over this, you're left with so many questions. You're still going to be left with questions. But I don't want you to be left with that many questions. I want to make sure you get this. Because these truths, what we're looking at, though difficult, are fundamental. If God is God, he is free to offer mercy however he wills. The flip side of that is this week and the coming weeks. God is also able, he is also free to judge however he wills. Right? He's God. He gets to make up the rules. He's God. He's free to do whatever he wants to do according with his nature. And listen, these are hard truths. And, and, and if, you, if you're struggling with these deep truths of God's sovereignty, if you're struggling with these deep truths uh, of God's mercy and judgment and grace and all that. Listen, you're in good company because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, write this down in the side of your notes. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. When, you, when you're struggling as we continue to go into the deep waters of chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Romans, when you're struggling to keep your head above water, 
Just know that struggling with you at times was Peter. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.15. He says this, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things. Listen to this. In which some things are hard to understand. That would be a good time. Amen. Amen. Which the untaught, but listen, here's the challenge. It may be difficult to understand, but here's our challenge. Even then as it is today, which the untaught and unstable distort. We better be careful how we deal with the hard passages. Because here's how we tend to distort them. We tend to distort them by making God like us. Instead of simply saying, God, you're God and I'm not. God, you're the great one. I'm not. God, you're the finite one. I'm, you're infinite, rather. I'm finite. God, you're all-knowing. I'm not. God, you're all-sovereign. I'm not. God, you're all-present. I'm not. Instead of just submitting, here's what we want to do. We want to bring God down to our level. Better yet, we start to play God. Listen, he says, as they do with the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. We live in a world where this word is being distorted every single day. In churches, outside of churches, in gatherings of supposed Christians, and not. Secular college professors are distorting the word. The world is distorting the word. Preachers are distorting the word to tickle people's ears, to fill up the coffers, to keep them coming back. And I get it. Listen, it's, it's more fun. to. I, I get it. In my flesh, it's more. It would, I've never done this, so I don't know. I'm assuming. It's probably more fun to stand in an audience and preach to 20,000 people than it is to 12. I'm guessing. You know what you do to do that? You start changing the word. Because if you preach the truth, they don't come back. There's too many options for them. They'll go somewhere where they can get their ears tickled. Hey, okay. Distorting the scriptures. Adulterating the scriptures. That's nothing new. We did not create that in our culture. It's been going on forever. And listen, we have a hard time with these passages. It, but it's not that they're unclear, as we've said. It's mainly that they're hard to accept. Because of what they do to us. It's contrary to how we would do things. We don't like that. It's not the way we would do them. It, it, our flesh fights it. It reminds us that we're not in control. That we're not the ultimate masters of our ships. That there's a God who is sovereign. These are hard texts. And the question, when Paul, when Paul preaches these things, when he says, verse 17 and 18, as I just read, he expects questions. He expects them. And, and, and again, look at 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Here's the question that everyone asks as soon as you mention, and it's oftentimes a misunderstanding Again, of God's sovereignty, but it's because this is the way our minds think. But as soon as you say that, here's the question. If God, if, if God is sovereign, how am I still responsible? Isn't that the question? That's the question. If you think these things through, that's what we ask. How can you, and again, here, how can God rightly judge my sin if he's sovereign? And again, this would have been a perfect place if that question was not, if that question was unfounded, if it was unrealistic, if these people who were listening to Paul, reading Paul, would have misunderstood what Paul was saying. This would have been the place where Paul would have said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding, you're not understanding me. No, 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 God, God when you think of God's sovereignty, remind yourself, it's, God just looked forward and saw what you would do and then reacted to what you would do and he just kind of orchestrated his whole universe around what you were going to do anyway and so it's really your sovereign. That's how we think about it. 
Because again, who, who becomes the center of everything then? You and I. Here's the thing, Paul didn't back down. Matter of fact, Paul doubled down. He goes all in. Again, God gets to show mercy however he wants. He's sovereign. Again, not to the, dis, not to the total demise of our responsibility, but God is sovereign. He is God. And there are, there are privileges and rights and authority to, that go along with that title, I alone am God. He gets to call the shots. And, and Paul is saying, listen, again, God acts to display his glory. That is center. And so again, again, helping us to understand what we said was our main point, that God has the freedom to create and judge as he wills. Paul begins to dive into this answer and to prove his point. And we're only going to look at verses 19 through 21 this week because I'm sure when you read 22 through 24, there's all kinds of questions that come up, and that's a whole other point. We're not even, we don't have time. We may not even get through all of that next week. But listen, this is, it, 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 this is the place where we safely work these things out. So when we go out there before a watching world, we've, we've, we've worked it out. We've wrestled with it. And we understand what it means. So that we don't go out there and look foolish in front of a watching world. And so Paul, Paul explains this again, begins to explain a God who has the freedom to create and judge as he wills. And, he, and, and that's point one. And points two and three will come in later messages. But you see it on your handout. There's three ways, there's really three ways that Paul answers this objection. We're only going to look at the first one today. And it's this, that as God, he has the right to deal with his creatures however he pleases and to his own glory in accord with his nature. God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Again, in accordance with his nature. Look at 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? That's the question. On the contrary, Paul says, listen to this. And I, I, I love this kind of sanctified joking. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Seriously? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Right, there's nothing about that that's hard to understand. Right, those are pretty simple words. We understand pottery. We understand clay. We understand that if you, if you brought me a lump of clay and said, hey, go, I get to do whatever I want to do with the clay. And nobody would say, well, the clay then can ask the potter, why'd you? we know in our minds that's crazy. But here's, here's, here's why we don't mind that scenario, because we're the potter, not the clay. Right? But it's different when we're the clay and we're not the potter. Where we have a difficulty is, is when we're not in charge of what gets done with the clay. That's why these passages are hard. We don't mind at all being the potter. We hate to be the clay. Listen, every single one of us here loves to be in charge. We love to be in charge. Now, at the end of the day, we don't, want, we don't really like the responsibility and all that goes with that. And when it doesn't go right, we don't want to be in charge. And we blame God, what we saw last week. But again, Paul is saying, and again, that's, that's cutting down to the chase. You see it on a handout. Why we struggle with these texts is because it dethrones you and me as ultimately being in control and the center of everything. That's why we struggle with these texts. It's not because they're hard to understand. Listen, I got a fifth grader who goes to Lutz Elementary. They do pottery all the time. And my, my daughter comes home with stuff that I need. Sometimes, don't tell her this, I need like an interpreter. Like, what is that? But you know what? She had the freedom to do with that piece of clay whatever she wanted. 
And we got no problem with that when we're the potter. The problem with this text is it makes it very clear you and I ain't the potter. We're the clay. And again, we're not in control. Responsible? Yes. Does God command that we make morally wise decisions? Yes. Are we accountable for those decisions? Yes, but we're not ultimately sovereign. God has the right to do with you and me, with his creation, whatever he pleases. And what, what we see here, the reason why we struggle is, Paul teaches us here that subordination is the issue. Proper posture before God is the issue. God is God and we are not God. He is in charge and we are not. He is sovereign, we are not. And you see it on a handout. We must be reminded, and that's what Paul is doing here, we are reminded that we as human beings are in no more of a position to question God than clay would be to the potter. It would be no more foolish for you and I to question the way that God governs his universe than it would be for the clay to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Right? I mean, that would be foolish for the clay to say to the potter, why me? Why did you put my handle here? Why is that one bigger than the Why is that one bigger than me? Why is the price tag on that one bigger than me? Why is that piece of pottery you made holding flowers in a palace and the dogs are drinking out of me? Right? I mean, that's kind of the, you, you laugh, but Paul says, one thing molded would not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Hey, the same lump, one for honorable use, one for common use. That's right there in the text. And we got no problem, listen, we got no problem when we're the vase in the palace holding the flowers, right? The problem comes when we're the dog bowl. Not be, not be silly, but... Or when we're not, whatever, you fill in the blanks. If that's too crude or whatever, I don't know. Common use. Hey, we want to be, we wanna be the, the cup, the teacup that we all got for our weddings that we never, ever use, that sit up in the china cabinet that never gets opened for show. We want to be that teacup. We don't want to be the, tea, the teacup that gets thrown around and you grab it to fill up the dog's bowl and you grab it when you're going out. and you don't. Care. We don't want to be that guy. As long as, as long as we're the heat, as long as we're the focus, we're cool. And, and fundamental to all of this, fundamental to all of this, again, starting with the right questions. You ask the right questions, you get the right answers. You ask the wrong questions, you get the wrong answers. And listen, we're all really good at asking questions in such a way to get the answer that we want. So, so we're leaving that behind. Let's ask the hard questions. Here's the fundamental question. You see it in your handout. What kind of a relationship do you think exists between you and God? And the answer to that dictates the attitude that flows from that relationship. Who's God and who's the subordinate? Who's the potter? Who's the clay? Who's in charge? Who's not? And when we realize that we're the clay, there's a spirit of humility that, we, that comes forth in accepting our position before God and accepting the reality that God gets to show mercy however He wants. It's His to give out. God gets to do with His creation whatever He wants to do to His glory. And when we contend with these truths... Listen, you're not, you, may, you may hate this sermon, okay, but you're not contending with me. This is why, listen, this is why I, I, number one, I'm not smart enough to do anything else. But number two, when you contend, I want you to be contending with the Scriptures. You're not contending with my opinion. To the best of my ability, I'm telling you what this says, and I don't think it's very hard to understand. I think it's hard to accept. And Paul makes it very clearly. Who are you contending with? Listen, let's make it honest. When, when, if I complain that I don't have a nice head of hair, 
Guess who's sovereign over that? Say it with me. Who am I contending with? Who made me? If I contend, oh, I'm short, I'm this. And listen, we all struggle with that. Understand who you're contending with. God. That's no, again, I'm the subordinate. He's the sovereign. He gets to, he gets to do with his troops the general gets to position his troops however the general wants to position his troops, right? And, and I, I listen, I'm not at all saying that we can't ask God questions. I'm not at all saying we can't wrestle with things. James 1.5 says, again, in the middle of trials, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God freely who gives freely to all who ask. You ever been in a struggling situation and you're not sure what God's doing? You know what James says? Ask. Ask. Last night we had to discipline one of our children. I didn't say, okay, I want you to figure out what the problem is. I'll tell you what the problem is. But what I'm saying here is, there's a way to ask in humility, and there's a way to ask in arrogance. How we ask, how we approach God matters. Are we, are we approaching Him with humility? Are we approaching Him, judging Him on how He's done things? Are we seeking to understand Him, or are we seeking to implicate Him of possible wrongdoing? Are, are we seeking him because things are unclear? Or are we seeking him because we would have done it differently? And he needs to know how he should have done it differently. And, and this imagery of pottery was a frequent imagery not lost on, on the individuals of the Old Testament, not lost on the, the, the people that Paul would have been speaking to. Look with me at Job 10. There's many of these. And Job 10 is not exactly, it's not specifically. Isaiah is, and we'll look at that in a moment. But in Job 10, I think it paints a picture and an illustration that we'll understand. In Job 10, okay, listen, look at verses 8 and 9. They, they may come up on the screen, but for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and read them. You can write it down. Job 10, verses 8 and 9. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and you would turn me into dust again? I, I quote that because this is Job in the middle of his circumstances, Job struggling. Job's wondering, what are you doing, God? Job has been stripped of everything, his loved ones, his possessions, even his own health. And the context of Job 10 is, is, God, is, is Job is despairing over how God dealt with him. And part of that is what we saw in verses 8 and 9. And Job understands full well that he is the clay and God is the potter. Now in that context... Job has not taken it to its logical end. That comes later. But in the Old Testament imagery, we see clearly they understood that God was the potter, that his people were the clay. That's the point, that God can do whatever he wants with his creation. You see it on your hand out there. The purpose of this imagery of clay and potter is to remind ourselves of the gulf that exists between God and creation. Nobody would put clay and the sculptor on the same level. Thus the fact God has every right to do with creation whatever he wants to do in order to get glory. In order for his name to be lifted high. God is the one who is God. Who are we to talk back? And the reason why I chose this example in Job is because if you kept reading through the book of Job... God graciously brings us to the right conclusion and God gives Job the answer to his question. If you're in Job, flip over to chapter 40. If you keep going through Job, you get to the, to the conclusion. And in Job chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, 
Then the Lord, so after Job is done, all right, God has spoken to Job in chapter 38, 39. And, and if you want a good, um, a good read, I mean, think, I mean, God in verse 38, verse 4, he's talking to Job. I love it. In, um, listen to verse 3. Now gird up your loins, big boy, like a man, and I'll ask you, and you instruct me. Is that how this is going to work? God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, Job. Who set its measurements since you seem to know? Right? Okay, keep, if you like, if you like that, I like that kind of stuff. I like that kind of talk. Um, but, you know, that probably speaks more to my indwelling sin nature and all that. But it's like, dude, you going to seriously talk to God like that? Like, the point is this, you weren't around. And the conclusion that Job brings him to in chapter 40, verse 1, look at this. The Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job, all right, Job realizes, uh-oh, uh-oh. Job answered the Lord and said in verse 4, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That's the conclusion. Here's the answer, Job. Here's the answer, church at Odessa. You're not going to find fault with God. You're not going to find fault with God. You're not sovereign. God is sovereign. You, like Job, are a sinner unworthy of any act of mercy, and yet God has shown great mercy. I, God, God is saying, listen, I will do with my creation whatever I want to do for my glory, and there won't be fault involved because you're not worthy. I mean, God dares Job to, 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 to try to find, try to reprove me, try to find fault, Job, I dare you. And again, there, there's no answer. Put, put your hand on your mouth. And you see it on your hand that when we realize and rightly accept that God is God and we are not, that God is free to do with his creation whatever he wants, at that point we're ready to see God in life rightly. Again, you can ask questions. There, there are situations in this church that I ask questions. But hopefully I do it humbly. Hopefully I don't do it in a spirit that, is, that in any way, shape, or form insinuates that that God has done wrong. And the challenge is this. Have you ever tried to explain hard things to your kids? They ask you these questions and you're like, there's no way I'm going to be able to explain this to them. The, the other day at dinner, and, and explain it to them in a way they're going to grasp. The other day at dinner, we're talking and Sarah Grace says, Dad, why did God even put the tree in the middle of the garden if he knew Adam was going to eat of it? Wow, this is going to be a long dinner. <laughs> Explain that to a fifth grader, right? Who hasn't even finished asking the question before she probably doesn't even care. But listen, that's a good question. Listen, no, sometimes no matter how simple you try to drill it down, they ain't going to grasp it. There's a gulf. Between us and God. And, and we love to quote Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. Oh, your ways are higher than our ways. Yeah, we quote that when we understand what God's doing, when it justifies us. But when God does what we don't want him to do and what we don't know why he did what he did, now there's a problem. And, and listen, and I, I love Habakkuk 1.5. And, and write this down, Habakkuk 1.5 says this, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. God says, because I am, listen, because I am doing something in your days, listen, you would not believe it even if you were told. You know, God says to Habakkuk, listen, even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't understand it. 
You wouldn't even accept it. And in that case, God is going to raise up the Chaldeans to punish Israel for their disobedience, and then he's going to punish the Chaldeans for punishing Israel for their disobedience. Explain that one to a fifth grader. And you know what we say to that too? Is that fair? Is that just? Listen, none of them deserved it. God's people were sinners. They deserved to be punished for their sin. The Chaldeans were disobedient sinners and deserved to be punished for their sins. Period. Period. I mean, there's things about our lives. Listen, we think we want to know. If, I've said this about my own life. If God told me, what if God gave me a glimpse of what my life would look like in 10 years, there's a good chance, not being silly, I'd get in that corner in the fetal position and suck my thumb. I'd be so scared of what I saw. Possible. If you'd have told me 15 years ago that I'd be standing before you preaching this text right now, I would get in the fetal position and would have sucked my thumb. Some of you may wish I, God would have done that so I could have ran. I don't know. Listen, there are, there are times in our lives where, where we're going to be uncertain. There are times in our lives where, where we're going to have to walk in just utter faith, not understanding, but trusting the sovereign, good, merciful God who is holding our hand. And, and, and I keep going back to, this is why it's imperative that we understand his nature, understand his character. In, in Zephaniah 3.5, listen to what it says. The Lord is righteous. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. When you don't understand what's going on, here's the one thing that you have to cling to, the character of God. The character of God. The promises of God. The nature of God. That, that's why this text is so imperative that we understand it because we just talked about Romans 8 and there, there, for therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed in us. That God works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely also with him give him all things? It, uh, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Yet nobody, because it is God who justifies Verse 37, we overwhelmingly conquer through those who love him. Verse 38 and 9, there's nothing created, no nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Are those promises true? It, but they're true because of God's character. They're certain because of God's character. I, I was blessed yesterday, Emmanuel's grandmother passed away and I was blessed to go to the funeral and, and to just to be preached to and poured into and, and that her pastor preached out of John 14. And Jesus is saying, don't you worry, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would tell you, listen, when I'm done, I'm coming back for you. Is that promise certain? You know why it's certain? Because God's character. It's God's character. And baby May is in a place. He talked about a safe place. And a secure place. And a sure place. Why? Because of the character of God. And, and, and there's in our hearts, there is this desire and tendency to want to vindicate ourselves, even if it means blaming God. It can't be our fault. I mean, all the way back to the garden, who did Adam blame? So who was, God, who was Adam ultimately blaming? God. Who gave him that woman? Oh, you know what? If you wouldn't have put that tree there, I wouldn't have done it. You know, who are you blaming? God. And, and listen, we talked about it last week, and, and there's, I, I'm, try, I'm using a little bit of liberty here, but in our vernacular, last week the question was, it's not fair. I think the question Paul deals with here is really number two on our hit list. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. We love to play God until, it, until it, we get to the end and realize that that ain't a good idea. And then all of a sudden, you know what we do? It's not my fault. Whose fault is it? 
It's surely not God's fault. And here it is. It's not my fault. That's just the way God made me. That's a lie. Oh, it's, it's Adam's fault. No, you're passing the blame. Uh, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Uh, the husband you gave me. Uh. Again, we, we go to great lengths to vindicate ourselves, even if it means blaming God. God did not create you and, uh, you and me. He did not create us to sin or for sin, but he was sovereign over the fact that we could sin. I mean, God put the tree there, Sarah. He didn't have to put the tree there, but he did. And my point to Sarah Grace was this. Here's, here's why God put the tree there. Because God gets great glory in us choosing him over our sin. And even if we sin, you know what? God gets great glory. Here's the goal. God gets great glory in redeeming sinners. And you and I would never have seen his mercy. We would never know his mercy. Even in a way that Hebrews says that the angels don't even. The angels marvel at what you and I know about God, namely his mercy. We would never know his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace had he not said, you know what? I'm going to put the tree there. They're going to choose to sin. You know what, Jesus? I'm going to crucify you so that I can redeem them. And you know what? You know what's good? You know what the end goal is going to be? My mercy. My name is going to be made great. That's the end all, end all. We've seen it clearly here. For my name's sake. It was Adam who disobeyed. He didn't demand that Adam disobey. He certainly, he was sovereign over it. He didn't make him do it. He knew he would. He could have done something else, but he didn't. Because God would get glory in redeeming sinful humanity and bringing them back into relationship with them, adopting them, saving them. When they sinned. And because of Adam's sin, God plunged the whole human race into sin. And even there, people say, okay, you see that? It's not my fault. Listen, even that is to imply that you would have done better. Oh, had I been in that garden, I wouldn't have ate that tree. Listen, not, not to be blunt, but if we all looked at our own lives, right? I think our lives are testimony to the fact that we'd have ate the fruit too. Because we're still eating the fruit. Right? We're still buying Satan's lies. We're still doing the very thing that God said do not do. And when the consequences come, God's sovereign. Listen, it's not your parents' fault. It's not the school you went to's fault. It's not the culture you grew up in's fault. And it's certainly not God's fault. I mean, it, that would be as silly as, again, I put it on here, as a mass murderer blaming his parents. Right? No, no, you did that, buddy. And again, the, the context of Romans 9, Paul here quotes, and I, and I quoted Job because I think it, it easily illustrates the point that God is free to do whatever he wants with his creation. Paul here Quotes Isaiah 29. Write down Isaiah 29, verse 16. Most scholars believe this is the passage that Paul quotes specifically. And, and, and starting in 15, just for context, Woe to these who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? Verse 16 is the verse. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal to the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. This is significant. In the context, God is warning Jerusalem, You better turn from your sin and repent, or else calamity is coming. And, and, and they're going to argue with God. Think that God doesn't see their sin. 
And, and what, is, what does Isaiah say? You, you in your own wisdom think you can turn things upside down. You think you can play God and you can be the potter and you think God is going to be the clay that you're going to manipulate him and you're going to get him to do your will instead of you doing his will. You're going to bring God, you think you're going to bring God down onto your level? That's Isaiah 29. They've tried to switch places. They refuse to simply let God be God. They want to play God, and it doesn't work out very well. Flip over to Isaiah 45, verse 9. This is the other passage that Paul quotes here. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say he has no hands? We have no right to quarrel with God. It's interesting there. In, in, and, and this is good for, for our students. Uh, parents, you'll appreciate this one. Go to verse 10 of that same chapter, Isaiah 45. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Listen, kids, for, for you to arrogantly, insubordinately, lack of humility, question your parents, is paramount to questioning God. If your parents are standing on the word and how they raise you. you parents, you, don't su- you, you better not settle for that. Because you're teaching your kids how they're going to deal with God. By how they deal with you. And again, you see it on a handout. We have questions and God can handle our questions. But we have no right to interact with God in a spirit that assumes that we know better. Or could have done better. Right? I mean, I want my kids to feel free to ask questions. But not for one second can they do that in a spirit that thinks they know better. And, and Scripture teaches us, listen to me, that to do that is paramount to rebellion. It's rebellion. And, and you see it on your handout. What Paul calls for here in these verses and text is not that we can never ask of God, as James 1.5 says exactly the opposite, but rather the fact that we must maintain a right posture before God. We've got to come to him in a right, right spot. God is sovereign. And, and again, all illustrations break down at some point. I've said that many times, but the great D. James Kennedy shares this illustration. He says, suppose five people are planning to hold up a bank, and they're your friends. And you find out about it, and you plead with them not to follow through and carry out their plans. You beg them with all you have. Finally, they push you aside and they head out. But suppose you tackle the slowest and the weakest one and wrestle with him to the point where the others leave him behind and go about their plans to rob the bank. In the process of robbing the bank, they kill a guard and two civilians. They are captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But the one you wrestled with lives free. Here's his question. Whose fault is it that the people who robbed the bank were arrested and sentenced to life in prison? Can they blame you? Can they blame anyone? And here's the flip side, he says. What about the person you wrestled down and prevented from being a part of the robbery? Can, they, can that person claim any glory in their freedom? No, they cannot. Can that person claim because of the goodness of their heart they resisted temptation and are free? No, they cannot. Who's all praise go to? The one that wrestled him down. Listen, that's, that's picture, that's you and me. We can't blame anyone except ourselves, and we certainly can't accept the credit. All glory goes to God. And, and we have to constantly remember this. Because as we've said, you and I, the tendency is for us to switch positions. We love to play God. We love to put ourselves in the position of, of being sovereign or in the position that we deserve something. And that leads me to the application that you have there on your handout real quickly as we close. We've got to remember to keep God at the center of everything. 
we are tempted to lose the awe of our salvation, to lose the awe of God and the amazement of salvation, thinking we deserved it or merited it. And you see it in your hand that we tend to fall in one of two traps, either thinking that we do deserve God's grace, and maybe we're not quite that, quite, quite that arrogant, but we think at the very least we do not deserve his judgment. Like we wouldn't say we're Mother Teresa, but we ain't this guy over here either. And I want to give us some diagnostics. We, we tend to reverse the order of being in submission to God, of not being God. And you see there the question that all of these kind of flow through on your handout that you can contemplate in your grow groups. Does the gospel, the good news that God saved you from your sin and judgment by his great mercy, that none of it was deserved, does that cause my heart to rejoice and my soul to be flooded with gratitude in all things? Do you live every day in amazement as we sung this morning? Maybe have you become complacent, forgetting who you were? Hebrews 2.1 says this, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That's our tendency. That's why we meet every week. That's why we preach the word. That's why we ought to be meeting in Bible studies, meeting in people's homes. That's why we have fellowship with one another, to encourage each other not to drift away. To not be deceived. And so I have here on your handout some, some symptoms for you to talk about, some diagnostic symptoms of maybe... The gospel has become commonplace to you. Maybe your own salvation has become commonplace to you. The first one is this. One sign that you're drifting into complacency is that you grumble about trials, forgetting that God has done the greatest thing imaginable in sending his son to die in place. Interestingly enough, in Philippians chapter 2, after chapter, verses 1 through 11, in picturing the humility of Christ in suffering, in dying, in emptying himself for our sakes... What would you think the first command would be, the first thing Paul would say after that? I don't know. Here's what Paul does say. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. If you know your Old Testament well, what was one of the main characteristics of Israel in the desert? If you're honest with yourself, what's one of the number one ways that we spend our lives? Grumbling and complaining. Lack of gratitude. Listen, part of it's lack of gratitude, part of it's thinking that our, our, our glory is preeminent. We deserve better. That's what you're saying when you grumble. You deserve better. Do you? Do you really? Another sign that you're drifting into complacency is that you become focused on the things of this world more than the things on the kingdom of the kingdom of God. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and, all the, and his righteousness and all these things. It's real tempting to put my kingdom as preeminent. To, to forget that God saved me for his glory, not my own. Not so that I could live my own life and then just go to heaven. Another sign that you're drifting to complacency is that you begin to envy the wicked, thinking that sin will satisfy your needs. You know, I'll admit to you the other day we were driving and we were going to pick up Sarah Grace from school, Karen and I, and this young, like, 16, 17-year-old person is in this brand-new Mercedes next to me. I'm like, Karen, how is that possible? I was born in a 2013 Chrysler town and country that's got nine meals on the floor <laughs> and leftovers. That person is driving a brand-new Mercedes. Here's what I was reminded. It's because you prioritize different things, Chris. We've organized our lives in a way that, listen, if we, did, if we organized them differently, Karen could drive her nice Mercedes. You know what we've choose, chosen to do with that money? Invest in the kingdom of God. Go to the DR in February. Serve some orphans. Take those thousands of dollars and go to the Bahamas in July and serve people whose lives were ravaged by a hurricane. 
We've chosen to do with the Bible. Not that we're perfect. Don't hear me saying that. But I have to be reminded of these things is what I'm trying to tell you. Because I can very easily look to my right or left and, and lose focus. Listen, I would love to drive a Mercedes. My flesh. I won't. Because I don't want to deal with the questions. Quite frankly. I'm just being honest. I don't want to deal with the questions. It's not worth it. Do you envy the wicked? Do you find joy in investing in God's kingdom instead of this kingdom that's going to fade away? Another question. Another sign that you're drifting into complacency is that you've become indifferent to sharing the gospel with the lost. When's the last time you spoke to somebody and shared with them the gospel? Good question. When's the last time on your campus, at your college, in your workplace, in your neighborhood... When's the last time you had somebody that you believe to be a non-believer in your home for dinner to build a relationship with them? Bradley and I were sitting at, at Gaither the other day and, you know, contemplating these things. And I said, Bradley, here's, here's what burdens me. And here, here's on my own life. This girl walked by and I said, Bradley, here's what pains me about my own life. I can live in such a way where I have no care where that girl is going to spend eternity. And I can look at people and care about what car they're driving and thinking about how did they get that car instead of where are they going to spend eternity. That's just the reality. That's why we need the word, guys. That's why we need grow groups. That's why we need each other, because all of us are tempted to not put the main thing, the main thing. We get saved and we think it's all about us and we go living our own privatized Christian lives, forgetting that God has called you to be an ambassador. To preach the gospel, to, to have, how beautiful are the feet, we're going to see it in Romans 10, of those who bring the good news. That though our sins were scarlet, they could be washed white as snow through the blood of Christ. I promise you, you do that, there's no greater joy. Driving that Mercedes is not going to bring me the same joy as it is seeing people's lives conform to the gospel. And listen, last, how we steward, you see it there, God's mercy tells what we believe about that mercy. Did we deserve it or was it grace? Did we earn it or was it grace? What were we saved for? These are the questions that I want us to chew on in our grow groups. To help us be conformed to the image of our Savior. That we would help each other keep God as sovereign. Keep it all about God. God is free to do with us whatever He wants to do.